like to introduce the sermon today with a little story about three country guys that went to the Olympics. And they wanted to get into the Olympic Village. This is where the athletes stay. So they got there and they looked around. They realized they got to get through a gate where a fellow was checking everybody's ID and asking them questions. So I thought, let's, let's stand here and watch, and maybe we can figure out how to get in to the Olympic Village. So they watched, and they see this big husky guy come up to the gate. And the uh, officer there said, no, what's your name? He said, Ian McPherson. Where are you from? He said, Scotland. He said, what event are you in? He said, uh, <clears throat> shot put. And he opens his duffel bag, and here's this big shot in his bag. And one of the guys says, you know, I, th I think we can get through this. I think we can figure out how to do this. He says, watch me. So he saw a piece of uh, about six-foot um, copper piping. He picks it up, puts some tape on each end, and around the center. And he walks up to the uh, gate, and the guy says, uh, what's your name? He said, Chuckwagon. <laughs> the guy said, where are you from? He said, Canada. He said, what event are you in? He pulls up the copper pipe. He says, Javelin. The guy says, okay, come on in. He said, here's your keys to your room and your free meal tickets. Now, the other guy says, I think I can do this too. So he gets two aluminum pie pans and sticks them together, puts them in his duffel bag. He walks up, and the guy says, uh, what's your name? He said, uh, Dusty Rhodes. He said, where are you from? Australia. He said, what event are you in? He points to the pie pans. He says, discus. I said, well, okay, here's your free tickets, uh, here's your tickets to your room and, and your meal tickets. He gets inside, sees Chuck Wagon over there, and he said, uh, where's John? Now, John was a little slower. He said, where's John? He said, I don't know. Uh, let's, let's watch and see what happens. Then they see John coming up from the other side of the gate. He has a couple of loops of barbed wire over his shoulder. So he gets up to the gate, and the guy says, and who are you? He says, uh, John Farmer. He said, where are you from? He said, Colorado. He said, what event are you in? He points to the barbed wire. He says, fencing. <laughs> <laughs> fencing. <laughs> of course, the guy looked at him. He said, nice try, buddy. <laughs> Nice try, but there's no tickets to any free room, and there's no tickets to any meals. He said, this is for athletes only, not for actors. So again, what's the point of the story? <laughs> the point of the story is we had three guys that wanted to get into a very special place without meeting the requirements. They wanted to get into a very special place without meeting the requirements. So what does this have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with the, ser the sermon we're going to be talking about today? I'd like you to turn to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 1. I want to read a couple of scriptures that we're familiar with, but I want to read it, and I want you to think about it as we read it. In Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John was put in prison... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I'm here as a representative of that kingdom. Repent 
and believe the gospel. You know, several years ago, we had an issue that came up in the church about just what is the gospel? Just what is the gospel? And there were some that thought that uh, the gospel is just believing in Jesus. Some thought that the gospel was just uh, believing in God or believing that God, that, uh, God loves you and that if you believe in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. And that's not what the Bible says. You know, we just heard a sermonette on exegesis, understanding what the Bible really does say. But the Protestant world, the Catholic world today, basically believes the gospel is just about Jesus, that if you believe in him, you're going to go to heaven. And that's not what the Bible says. That's not what we have ever taught. <clears throat> you know, the Bible talks about the gospel. Now, we're not going to talk about all the gospel today, but I just wanted to lay a foundation here. The biblical gospel is called good news. Good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and for my sins so that we don't have to pay the penalty of those sins because he paid that for us. But it's also that we can gain eternal life. We can gain eternal life. Now, for those of you that are 16, 17, 23, 24, 25, Eternal life sounds like way down the road. You know, for those of us, uh, as we heard by the gentleman, the senior citizen, the octogenarian <laughs> that introduced me today, <laughs> eternal life begins to sound very different, much more exciting, much more uh, something to look forward to as we get older. But that's because we're physical. God never designed us to live for all eternity in this physical life. But part of the gospel is the opportunity to gain eternal life, where you will live forever. Where you'll live forever. Now, many young people want to just live right now. <laughs> but this is talking about living forever, becoming part of God's family, and reigning with Jesus Christ on this earth to bring peace to a very chaotic world. This is the purpose for human life. This is the gospel. It's talking about a coming kingdom of God when everything is going to change on this earth and that you can be part of that change if you're focused in the right direction. But how real is the kingdom of God to you? Or is this just an academic term? How real is the kingdom of God to you? Do you want to be part of that kingdom? Do you want to be there with Jesus Christ? If you do, that's going to drive decisions that you'll make in your life. It's going to implement or it's going to influence your priorities. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6:33, to seek first. Seek first. Set your heart on the coming kingdom of God. And strive to be there with all of your might. You know, it's easy to assume, I think, sometimes that you know, I'm in a church. I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. I keep the Sabbath. So I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. But that gets back to our story. There are requirements. There are requirements to be in the kingdom of God. Not just believing in Jesus, not just sitting in church, not just coming to church, 
there are requirements that we've got to meet. And you can't meet those requirements by taping up a six-foot length of copper piping (laughs) and pretending it's a javelin or putting two aluminum pipe hands together and pretending it's a discus. We've got to meet the requirements that are spelled out in the scriptures that are revealed there. So in the sermon today, I want to talk about three requirements or three keys to the kingdom of God. Three requirements or three keys to the kingdom of God. What do we have to do? What do we actually have to do to be in the kingdom of God so that we can be part of the government that Jesus Christ is going to set up on this earth so that we can have a future that goes on and on and on forever? We've got to meet those requirements. So I want to talk about these three requirements or three keys in the sermon today. If you turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, we come across one of the requirements that we're going to talk about. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Now, notice, notice the context here. Jesus is talking with his disciples. Let's start in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is going to be the greatest, or who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you'll notice, if you read through the New Testament, this was on the disciples' mind a number of different times. And they were kind of poking each other. I'm going to be number one. I'm going to be the greatest. I remember talking with a fellow, that, a young fellow, that um, came into the church about the same time I did. And we were attending church together. And uh, one Sabbath he said, uh, you know, by this time next year, I'm going to be a minister. By this time next year, I'm going to be a minister. By that time, a year down the road, he wasn't even around. Because he was impatient. He was ambitious. There's, not nothing, there's nothing wrong with wanting to serve God's people in whatever role that he makes available to us. But to pick out what we're going to do and then make these predictions uh, is, um, <clears throat> is very risky. It's very risky. You know, even on the night of the Passover, the disciples were sitting at the table with Jesus Christ. And one of, the part, one of their discussions was who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. This was after three years of being with Jesus. They still had never quite got the picture. <clears throat> so Jesus is addressing that here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of God? He picks up a little child and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted... Unless you are converted and become as a little child or as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's a requirement. Here's a requirement. He said, unless you are converted. Again, we can assume, well, I'm converted. I've been attending church for 20 years. I come to every Sabbath. Is that the definition of conversion? Yeah, it could fit with that, but I think we'll see the definition is much bigger. Acts 3.19, this is mentioned again. Acts 3.19. Again, all we're doing is reading the book, and these are the requirements. These are the conditions. 
that we read about. In Acts 3 and verse 19, it says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. But again, repentance and conversion are extremely important. I remember hearing an evangelist give a sermon years ago in Pasadena. He said, I was baptized on such and such a date, and I was converted later. (laughs) I was baptized on such and such a date, and I was converted later. I taught at Ambassador College in Pasadena for about 10 years. Dr. Meredith has mentioned this. I think Mr. Ames has seen the same thing, that we had a lot of people that were dunked under the water. We had a lot of people that were dunked out of the water because they wanted to fit in with what everybody else was doing. And I'm not going to be their judge, but a lot of those people are not around anymore. They just didn't stay. So that they joined something, but apparently the conversion was not there. And we'll see what conversion is all about here in just a minute. Conversion is a process. Conversion is a process that takes time. It takes time. You Initially, when you are baptized, you repent of what you know to repent of. But then over the years, you find out, well, there was something else I need to repent of and something else I need to change that I didn't realize at the beginning. So we need to continue making changes as God shows us what to change. God is a very loving God. If you ask God, God, please show me my sins. He just doesn't take the curtain and go, this is you. It's kind of like, oh, no. He might open the curtain a little bit and allow you to see a couple things. And if you start working on those things and you're continuing to pray, God, show me what I need to change, he'll open the curtain a little bit more, gently. As you work on those, he'll open a little bit more. And 10 years down the road, he might show you something. that, Wow, I didn't realize that. Well, you probably weren't ready to acknowledge that at that time. God is a loving father, and he'll do these things gently with us. So conversion is a process. And as we learn and as we see things we need to change, then we have to work on those things. It just doesn't happen all of a sudden. You can look up the words in the Old Testament or New Testament, both of them, in fact. Words for conversion mean to make a choice. To make a choice. In other words, you're choosing one way or another. One way or another. You know, when situations come up, you have a choice to make. Somebody offers you a cigarette. Well, nobody's looking. (laughs) No, God is there. Or they they offer you something else. I think Mr. Smith mentioned in his... uh, his uh, television program on Descent into Chaos, an article about a girl that got tattoos all over her body. And she said, I did these things really not thinking about it. It was just what everybody else was doing. And then she's in the process of getting those, those tattoos taken off and had a picture of her arm, what it looks like after they treat it with lasers to try and get rid of the tattoos. And they had welts, and, and blisters that was big as a 50-cent piece or bigger, ugly-looking things. 
And she was just commenting. She said, you know, if pain can be measured from 1 to 10, getting these tattoos off was like an 11. She said, it's horrible. It hurts. But she said, I just did these things because everybody else was doing it, and I wanted to fit in. See, she had a choice to make, and she apparently grew up in a, a disrupted, dysfunctional family, and she was looking to be accepted. So she did these things. Hopefully that's not something that's going to impact us that way. But conversion involves making a choice, making a choice, choosing one way over another. Another definition would be to turn back to God in repentance, to turn back to God in repentance, where you actually stop doing something that you realize God doesn't want you to do and you make a conscious decision to do it God's way. That's what conversion involves. And it takes time. And we have choices to make all through our life. So we've got to be making choices every day, and we want to make them God's way. The word for repentance, slightly different, has the connotation of being sorry. Of being sorry. In other words, you make a conscious decision. I'm sorry for doing it that way. I I want to do it differently. I want to please God. So repentance and conversion, they go together. They go together. Turning around and going in a different direction uh, is what is involved with repentance and conversion. Thinking differently. Satan will try and influence our thoughts, and sometimes we just have to grab that thought and throw it out the window and say, I'm not going to think that way anymore. But he'll keep boop, 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 trying to beam those thoughts into your mind. You just have to put up a wall there. You're putting it on the armor of God around your brain. So repentance and conversion are extremely important qualities. These are part of the requirements that we've got to have if we want to be in the kingdom of God. We just read in Acts 3.19, it says, Repent and be converted, that your sins can be blotted out. Now, what is sin? Drinking, dancing, saying bad words. What, what is sin? We've got biblical students in the audience here. What is the definition of sin? Where do we find it? What's the scripture? 1 John 3.4. 1 John 3.4. You can look at it in your King James if you have it. Uh, Different translations will translate this slightly differently, but it means basically the same thing. 1 John 3, 4. I've got a New King James. And New King James says that uh, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. The older King James says sin is the transgression of the law. But, you know, it means the same thing. You cannot be lawless and and function in this society very long because they will catch you and arrest you because you have broken the law. But whenever you just say, well, it's lawless, it, it doesn't sound quite as definite as transgression of the law. Now, why is it important to even talk about this? Basically, because if we break the laws of God, we will not be in the kingdom of God.
If you turn to Isaiah 59 and verse 2, why will we not be in the kingdom of God? Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Keeping in mind that Isaiah is writing to the Israelites who basically turned away from God and they reaped a lot of consequences as a result. Isaiah 59, starting verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And so if we break the laws of God, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. We're not going to be able to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God because we don't appreciate the value. We don't appreciate the importance of following the laws of God. Let's notice the New Testament, a couple of things here that talk about conversion and what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice what it says here about people who will not be in the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't Old Testament. This is New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous... Let's just stop there for a minute. What is unrighteousness? In fact, let's define righteousness first. What is righteousness? Where do we find the definition of righteousness? Come on, you biblical scholars. <laughs> what is the definition of righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 172, which says what? All thy commandments are righteousness. So righteousness involves living by the laws of God. So unrighteousness, unrighteousness involves breaking the laws of God. So it says here in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous, those who break the laws of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God? This becomes one of the qualities, one of the criteria, one of the keys for getting into the kingdom of God. And you notice what he talks about are basically things in the next part of that verse that break the laws of God. Neither fornicators, people that have sex out of marriage or before marriage, nor idolaters, people that set up idols, whether it's in their mind or in their houses or in their front yards, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. The Bible actually talks about these things. Today, it's you know we, we've, we've got to accept everything. We've got to tolerate everything. And yet God says, basically, this is an abomination. These behaviors are an abomination. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So these are the criteria. These are requirements that God says that we've got to have if we want to be in the kingdom of God. You know, as a teacher over the years, I've given quizzes. And quizzes have answers. If you don't come up with the right answer, <laughs> you don't do well in the quiz. We can ask the question here, what do we have to be? What do we have to have? What are the keys that we have to use to open up the lock <laughs> on the kingdom of God? 
And it's got to be obedience to God's laws, obedience to his commandments. This says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, Paul is talking about the society that he was part of today, that, that day that he lived in and moved through, very much like our societies today. Romans 1, 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even the women exchanged natural things for unnatural things. Verse 28, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a debased mind. And then it lists a whole lot of things, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. All these things are going to keep people out of the kingdom of God. And this is what we've got to come out of. This is the world that God has called us out of very mercifully. He said, this world is going down the tubes. I'm calling you out so you can be different. You can develop a totally different perspective. That you can be ready to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. So these are a list of uh, things. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's good to review these things from time to time. This is the way the world is going. This is what the world is like. This is the world that is tempting you, especially young people. And the message is going to be basically, you're missing out. You're missing out on a wonderful world, an exciting world, a brave new world. You're stuck in that church. And they won't let you do anything. They're mean. They're keeping you from having all the fun in the world. You know, you talk to people like this girl that uh, was mentioned in the television program. She did all kind of things. And when you look at her body, you can tell she did all kind of things. And now she wants to get rid of all those things. But it's hard. It's hard and it's painful. Because she was sucked into something she didn't understand. God has very mercifully called us out of this world. And for those of you young people growing up in families in the church, you are being blessed incredibly. You're being blessed incredibly by not having to go through all these things. And then maybe at age 25 or 35 or 45 kind of wake up and, whoa, did I mess up my life. If you can grasp that, and don't get sucked in with this siren call of trying to get you involved in something. Because people that do those things, the Bible says, are going to go into the lake of fire. They're going to have to face the consequences. Now, God is a very merciful God, but he's also a very loving God, and he's fair. He lets us make our own decisions, but then we have to face the music of those decisions. Hopefully, so we'll learn. Hopefully, so we'll learn. And if we can learn those lessons, we're going to be able to sit down with other people and say, you know, this is not the way to go. And let me explain to you why it's not the way to go. And if you can share experiences with them, say, look, I did this, I did that, I'll never do that again you're going to be able to connect with people that are kind of on the edge and trying to decide what to do and what not to do. You can be a very powerful instrument in God's hands by learning those lessons 
and, and, and developing some of these keys. Your conversion involves leaving something or choosing not to go in a certain direction and choosing to go in another direction, to go in God's direction, go in God's way. So what are the marks of a convertment? Let me mention two other things very quickly. We're talking about very visible sins. But turn to Psalm 90, verse 8. <clears throat> Psalm 90 and verse 8. <clears throat> and David mentions something else, not something real blatant. In Psalm 90 and verse 8, he said, You have set your iniquities uh, before you our secret sins in the light of your countenance. But David's talking about secret sins here. He's talking about secret sins. You can look up some other scriptures on that. Um, <clears throat> but he's talking about secret sins. What are secret sins? Secret sins are sins that nobody knows anything about except you and God. Basically, we have to acknowledge secret sins and get rid of those secret sins. So the Bible just mentions this kind of in passing. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's a very interesting phraseology. Because almost everybody's got something that, well, hope nobody finds out. <laughs> but those are the things we have to acknowledge. You know, we just came through the Days of Unleavened Bread. And part of the lesson of the Days of Unleavened Bread is to examine ourselves and to be very honest with ourselves and to acknowledge, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this or thinking that or moving in that direction. We need to acknowledge those and then get rid of those things, get those things out of our life. One other sin that's mentioned in uh, Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30 Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30. And you can look up a number of examples of this in the Bible. But again, this is the phrase that I want to focus on. Numbers 15 and verse 30. It says, The person who does anything presumptuously, whether he's a native-born or a stranger, that one, that one brings reproach upon the Lord, he shall be cut off from among the people. He's talking about a presumptuous sin. What is a presumptuous sin? Well, I know what God thinks, but, you know, nobody really pays much attention to that. And you just do it. You know you shouldn't, but you do it anyways. A presumptuous sin. So secret sins, presumptuous sins, these are things to look for so that we don't disqualify ourselves from being in the kingdom of God. And the zeal which, which, with which we approach these things, get rid of this, get rid of that, kind of tells God how serious we are about being in the kingdom of God. I want to get rid of this because it's going to keep me out of the kingdom of God. I want to do this. I want to do what's right. I want to make a conscious decision to move in a right direction. So what are the marks of a converted person? We're talking about things that we have to do to become converted. How would you recognize? You look in the mirror. The person you look at is going to be staring right out at you. <laughs> but how can you say, are you converted to that person looking out of the mirror? What would you look for? 
If I go back and maybe spend a little bit of time in uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, it talks about if you obey God, you're going to be blessed. Now, you may not be totally converted, but still, if you obey God, it's going to be better than if you don't. But the more you obey God, the more converted you're going to become as you walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, as you do things God's way. Go to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about what a Christian is, how a Christian will function, because he's talking about people that he's giving them advice how to live a Christian life. This is Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person that follows Jesus Christ, follows in his footsteps, follows his example. But just read some of these things. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually describing what a Christian life is all about. It says, Blessed, verse 3, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A person that's humble, a person that's teachable, a person that's not trying to impress you. I'm a Christian. Just look at me. No, a Christian is not going to be saying that. They're going to be humble. They're going to be teachable. Their example is going to be something. For theirs is the kingdom of God. They're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, who are concerned for other people. We'll talk about this a little bit more in our third point. But they're concerned about other people. They see the evils in the world, and they sigh and they cry. God, please bring your kingdom soon so that all this stuff can be over with. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, a meek person is a teachable person. They're willing to learn. They're willing to change. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, what's the definition of righteousness? All thy commandments are righteousness, and you hunger and you thirst. You want to live God's way of life. You want that to be the guiding star in your life. Number seven, blessed are the merciful. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get towards the third part. But being merciful is being willing to forgive people. We came across a situation recently where person number one was accusing person number two of being totally unconverted. But person number one would not forgive person number two for something person number two had done 40 or 50 years ago. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 6, unless we're willing to forgive, we will not be forgiven. A converted person will be able to forgive other people. This is the, this is the bottom line. These are the requirements. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We'll see God when we're spirit beings. We'll see God in the coming kingdom of God. A person that's pure in heart doesn't impute motives to other people. You said hello to me today, but what's, what did you really mean? <laughs> what did you really mean when you said hello? Well, I meant Hello. <laughs> Yeah, but there's, there's something behind that. I just know. You know. A person that's pure in heart is not going to be imputing motives like that. That's just an example. Just an example. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, peacemakers are not people with a 45 revolver on their hip that you wipe them out. That's not the way we bring peace. We've got to develop the skill of how to pour oil on troubled waters and to bring peace to difficult situations. You know, that seems to be part of my job. (laughs) You're traveling around the world, and for the most part, the congregations and the ministers that I visit are stable, they're solid, they're focused, but we're also human beings. And from time to time, you run into a situation that you just can't believe sometimes. But these generally are few and far between. But we've been called to become peacemakers. You as kings and priests, you will get the privilege and the opportunity (laughs) of sitting down with people that can't get along with each other and trying to bring peace to that situation. And it's a challenge. And we need God's help in that. But God is training We've got 240-some people here as potential kings and priests and queens and leaders and teachers in the coming kingdom of God. Can he send you to some place around the world or maybe just to Charlotte <laughs> to bring peace? Are you preparing to do that? Are you excited about that? Do you want to do that? Somebody's going to have the opportunity. 10, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The person that's going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake will be persecuted for keeping the laws of God. And Jesus said, blessed. In the Greek, the word blessed means to be envied. You might say, how can you be envied if you're persecuted? (laughs) You're being persecuted for the right reasons. God will see that and he'll see how you handle that. Because it says theirs theirs is or will be the kingdom of God. They're going to be in that very special place. So these are some things to look at. Let's look at, uh, maybe we just move on. Maybe ask the question, are you converted? Think about it. Maybe go home and think about it. Write it down. Then go home tonight and just ask yourself the question and look in the mirror. Are you That person in the mirror, are you converted? What are the signs that you would look for in a converted person? Let's go to Galatians 5 very quickly. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the the fruits of the spirit and the works of the flesh. And you can look in that mirror and you can think about what went on in your mind, what went on in your life the previous week. This might be good to do on a Friday night. Verse 18, it says, If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the penalties of the law, the consequences of the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, obvious. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, sexual type of things, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, arguments, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions and heresies, Envy, murderers, drunkenness, and the like. And notice, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, this is one of the requirements. If this is how we function, this is how we think, 
we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. So if we want to be in the kingdom of God, these things have got to go. What do we replace them with? Again, thinking in the context of unleavened bread. We get rid of the leavening, and what do we do? We put in unleavened bread. We've got to think and act differently. Walk in newness of life, as the New Testament talks about. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. You might say, well, I don't have God's Spirit, so this doesn't apply. You can still strive to do these things. You can still strive to do these things. This can be your goal in life. And God, please help me do these things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You might say, well, I'm in love with everybody. I remember one of Mr. DeSimone's little girls when she was very little. She wanted to kiss everybody. You've got to be careful with her when she grows up. <laughs> but she, would, she was in her mom's arms. She just puckered up her lips. Everybody came up. She wanted to kiss everybody. That's not what it's talking about here. I think you understand. <laughs> Love is an unselfish, outgoing concern where you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about others. If I say this, what's going to be the impact on the person that I'm talking to or the person that hears me. We think about those things. We think those things through. Love is an unselfish, outgoing concern. Joy, I hate being in this church. I can't do anything. Is that joy? I'm glad I'm in the church to become part of the first fruits of God's kingdom. We've got to look at the positive because Satan will try and get you to look at the negative. So we've got to focus, we've got to make a conscious decision to focus on the positive. What do you have to be thankful for? You know, we're growing up in a country with all kinds of freedoms that we have, and those freedoms can be abused. But why do so many people want to come here? Because they don't have the freedoms where they are. They don't have them, so they want to come here where it's different, where there are opportunities. You know, we were in Jerusalem a number of years ago. You walk down the streets in Jerusalem and it's, you got to be careful going through the narrow crossways because there's two or three Israeli policemen or police women standing there with automatic rifles. We would come home. We were staying in a kibbutz one couple of times when we were there. And you get on the bus at 5 o'clock. These kids that were the security forces are on the bus. And they get on the bus. They're walking down the middle with their automatic rifles. You've got to get out of the way <laughs> or you'll get hit in the face with the butt of a rifle. That's a very different world. I was watching a guy unloading some boxes for his, his store, and he had a 45 revolver or a 45 automatic in his belt because of potential problems. Fortunately, we don't have to live that way today. Peace, long-suffering. How do you build patience? That's what it's talking about. How do you build patience? By being patient when you don't feel like being patient. When your tendency is, I get out of the way, I'm going to bust you. You can't think that way. God will help us build patience by allowing us to have experiences where we have to be patient. And he can see how we're going to react. You know, if we don't build patience, again, we're talking about requirements to be in the kingdom of God. If he makes you a spirit being, gives you a city to work with, and he sends an angel down to, to check on you, maybe a year ahead of time, the angel comes in and 
There's smoking ruins in the city. The angel said, what happened? Well, I got carried away. I, yeah, a couple of earthquakes and lightning strikes. I was going to teach them a lesson, but they're dead. <laughs> no, we've got to have patience. We've got to have understanding. We may need to cause a little tremor <laughs> from time to time to get people's attention. <laughs> and when they, the earth shakes around you, you, you suddenly are willing to listen and look around. But, you know, if you're dead, you can't do anything. So these are the qualities that God is looking for in a converted person. And you don't have to be baptized to start doing these things. You can begin moving in that direction. Kindness, you have a choice to make when somebody says something to you. You can come back, yeah, same to you. Or you can bite your tongue and count to 10 or 20 or 30 (laughs) or 40 or 50 and not come back at them. You build patience, you build understanding, and you can also be kind. Goodness, you focus on good things, faithfulness. This could be to doctrine. It could be to your your parents or to your mates. Gentleness. I've used an example before. I watched people raising their kids whenever I was coming into the church and watched how parents dealt with their children. I remember the first feast I went to in Jekyll Island. I saw two or three parents spanking their kids over the front fender of their car in the parking lot. I said, wham! And I thought, what kind of church am I getting into here? Now, we don't advocate those things, but these were things that we saw. I remember one time one of our boys asked his mother, and I grabbed him, and I shook him, and I said, you never talk to your mother that way. And I saw this expression of terror on his face. I thought, I never want to see that expression on my child's face again. And so I had to apologize. I said, look, you've never been a kid before. And I've never been a dad before. So give me a break. (laughs) And I'll give you a break. (laughs) But, you know, I'd seen certain examples, and I thought that was the way to go. And then I had to learn that's not the way to go. That there's a better way to go. We can be firm, but we can also be kind. We can be kind, but we can also be firm when we need to. So these are qualities. Self-control, another one is mentioned. If we want to be in the kingdom of God, we've got to be converted from one way to another way. We've got to make conscious choices how to do things God's way. And again, you don't have to be baptized to do these things. But we need it'll move you on the road to becoming baptized because you want to make a commitment to God. God, I want to do it your way. And I'm going through this symbol, you know, the, the symbolism of baptism to bury my old self, my old way of thinking. I don't want to do that anymore. And then we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because we're going to slip up. We're going to slip up. And we can ask God, please apply that sacrifice to me because now I need it. You know, if you're 15, 16 or whatever and you've never done anything wrong, what do I have to repent of? <laughs> I've been good. Well, you'll come to the point where you'll need to realize, yeah, I, I do need it. I do need it. 
So are you a converted person? Jesus said, unless you are converted, you'll not be in the kingdom of God. Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? That should be our motivation. That should be our motivation for wanting to be converted. And it'll take some time. And be patient with yourself. (laughs) Because you're not going to be perfect tomorrow. You're not going to be perfect next week or next year or maybe even a decade from now. Mr. Ames is an octogenarian. He's getting closer to perfection. (laughs) He's probably 99%. (laughs) But he's still got to work on that 1%. That's why God is giving him more time. (laughs) Okay, let's look at number two. Another requirement. Another key that we're going to have to have to be in the kingdom of God. I'd like to ask the question here, how strong are your convictions? How strong are your convictions? Because to be in the kingdom of God, we're going to have to have strong convictions. You're going to have to know what the truth is. You're going to have to know what is right And you're going to have to know what is wrong very clearly. It's not one of these things, well, that's your opinion. This is my opinion. No, you've got to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. What is a violation of God's law and what is not. But we've got to be convicted about these things. We've got to know what's an abomination in God's sight. And what is acceptable in God's sight. Again, it's not one of these things, well, that's your opinion. No, it's got to be God's opinion. And we've got to have some strong convictions about these things. Notice in Joshua chapter 1, just noticing some examples of people in the Bible who had strong convictions. Joshua was filling some very big shoes. He was taking over from Moses. Moses had died. And he was being given some guidelines by God. In verse 5 it said, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will also be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. In a sense, God is saying that to each of us when he calls us. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You obey me. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to stand behind you. I'm going to go before you. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide the inheritance. In other words, you've got a job. He says, be strong and be of good courage. You've got to be able to stand up for what's right and point in the right direction. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Now, these are choices that you can make. You can go to the right. Nobody's going to make you do that. You can go to the left. Nobody's going to make you do that. These are your choices. And they're going to be tempting. Somebody might say, you know, I'd never do that. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. 
because you may wind up in a circumstance where, for whatever reason, you make a wrong decision. So don't, don't judge somebody that's made a wrong decision because you might wind up doing the same thing if you're in certain circumstances. And Satan knows what those circumstances will be. And he will test us. God tested Israel. He said, look, I'm not driving everybody out of the nation, out of the promised land. I'm going to leave some there to test you. To test you, to see what you're going to do. That's how we build character. We face tests and we have to make decisions. But he's saying, be strong, be very courageous. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. Verse 8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. This is going to be the outcome if you make wise decisions. And sometimes as young people and young adults, we make decisions that are going to stick with us for the rest of our life. I remember talking with an older elder one time. And uh, <clears throat> a very interesting character. I remember talking to him one other time. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, I said, I never knew what it was to repent until I heard some of your stories. <laughs> Things that he did growing up. <laughs> well, well, you need to forget those. <laughs> I said, no, it was very instructive. Very instructive. But he also t- made a comment to me one time. He said, Doug, you know, some people dig such hole, deep holes for themselves in their life that they'll never get out in this life. See, God doesn't want us to have to get into a hole that is so deep that it's hard to get out of. He wants us to stay up on the surface. He wants us to avoid a lot of these things. But Joshua is being told, be strong, be courageous, stick with the laws of God, don't go this way, don't go that way, stay right on course. Go to Joshua 24. The end of the book of Joshua, Joshua was making his farewell comments to the Israelites. Beginning in verse 14, talking to the whole nation, how he did that without a PA system like this wonderful one we have here today that has required no adjustments. (laughs) This is different. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers have served on the other side of the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you're going to serve. The latter part of that verse, but for as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is making a decision. He says, me and my family, we are going to serve the Lord. He made a decision and he was urging Israel to do the same thing. If you look through the New Testament, you find one other example in 1 Kings where Elijah is having this confrontation with Ahab and the priests of Baal. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing when you go home. 1 Samuel 18. Ahab was leading the Israelites in a wrong direction. Elijah was a little leery about going and challenging uh, 
Ahab, but he was told to go by God. So he decided he'll go. And his initial comment was, yeah, if I go there, he's going to kill me. But he decides to go anyways, and he challenges Ahab. Uh, In verse 17, he comes before Ahab, and Ahab says, Is that you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? You're the guy that's causing all these problems? And I'm sure that uh, Elijah probably thought his his knees might have been knocking about that time. You know, if I say something and challenge him, he's going to kill me. But notice what Elijah's response was. And he answered, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you followed Baal. So then they called 400 prophets of Baal. And they were going to have a test. They were going to have a contest. And Elijah says, you guys cut up a bull, lay it over some wood, put it on an altar, and then call on your God to uh, do something, to burn it up. So they did. And they danced around and yelled and screamed and prayed all morning. And uh, then Elijah says, uh, you know, your God maybe maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a, uh, on a trip. Uh, maybe he's meditating. <laughs> he was really rubbing it in. Uh, nothing happened. So that evening, Elijah puts together a, a small altar, cuts up an animal, a bull, cuts up the wood, lays it on top, and says, okay, now dump water on it three times. And then read Elijah's prayer. He was confident. He was convicted that something was going to happen. Verse 36, it came to pass at that time of the offering and the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, and here's his prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. That's pretty confident. And that I have done all these things at your word. You told me to do these things. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And lightning came down, consumed the animal, consumed the wood, consumed the altar, dried up the water, and people said, wow, this is God. This is a real God. And you run into the same thing in the New Testament with Jesus you know, went to Lazarus' funeral, or his, his grave, and everybody was crying. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes hobbling out, <laughs> wrapped up in the, the burial things. But Jesus just said a couple of words. Lazarus, come forth. And out he came. Jesus stilled the waters. He did various things. The apostles did the same thing. How do we build that kind of confidence? How do we build those convictions like that? A couple of quick comments here. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things. Prove what it is that you believe. Nail it down. Be sure of it. Prove what it is that you believe. Prove that God exists. We've got a booklet on the real God. Go through that. And ask yourself as you go through it, go through it with your children. Do we believe this? Do you believe this? Is this true? 
have a booklet on the proof of the Bible, Bible fact or fiction. Go through the booklet. Look at the evidence. Is this something that you can believe or is this this just opinions? But prove these things. Nail these things down. And build a relationship with God. You talk with God. Satan will try and bug you. You know, if you're praying that something will happen in your life and it doesn't, you know, Satan will beam the thoughts in there. Well, see, he doesn't exist. You're just talking to the ceiling. You know, you've got to wait on God to see when he's going to intervene on your behalf. You know, Joseph was in prison, what, about seven years, something like that? How do you think he felt? God, why don't you hear me? I don't want to be in here. But there was a time. There was a time that God was waiting on. And he acted in his time and in his way. You know, Dr. Meredith is fading, but he seems to be comfortable knowing that, you know, if I go to sleep, I'm going to wake up in the kingdom. I went to a funeral one time when I was attending another university, and one of the faculty members' daughters died of a brain aneurysm. The blood vessel burst. And I went to the, the funeral because almost everybody was going. It was the student body was small. And they started giving eulogies. The girl's boyfriend gave a, a eulogy. And I'm sitting there crying, and I didn't know anybody. <laughs> but the, the, the agony, it was, oh! Instead of saying, well, even in their theology, well, she's in heaven with God. That would have been very comforting. But they weren't even focused on that. We understand what's going to happen when somebody dies. They go into the grave, their thoughts cease, they'll come up in a resurrection. And we want to be in the first resurrection. And there are things we have to do to get there. So convictions. As we heard in the sermonette, we've got to be able to explain the word of God precisely, carefully. Now, we don't know all the answers to everything, but we know quite a bit. We know a lot more than what the world does because God has given us an understanding. We need to be thankful for that. But how strong are your convictions? Would you be able to say, because Jesus Christ is going to be looking for people who he can put in the kingdom of God in positions of authority, and they'll be able to say, this is the way Walk you in it. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21. He's going to need a group of people that will be able to say, this is the way. This is the answer. This is the way to peace. The Bible talks about the way to peace is to learn to live by the laws of God. That's the way to peace. I think it was Mao Tsung in China. He says, peace comes out of a gun barrel. Peace comes out of a gun barrel. That's not the way to peace. See, the world is all mixed up. And God is going to need a group of people that can show people, show the world the way to peace. And you've been called to be part of that, to do that. So how strong are your convictions? What can you do to strengthen those convictions? Prove what it is that you believe. Prove that God exists. Prove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Prove that God's way works. 
Because you're not going to be able to convince anybody in the kingdom of God to do things God's way if, if you haven't tried it and if you don't like it. What was the commercial years ago? A little guy by the name of Mikey. He said, Mikey, try it. You'll like it. To get him to eat food that he didn't want to eat. <laughs> How strong are your convictions? What can you do to strengthen? Let's look at the final quality, the final key, the final uh, <clears throat> requirement. The final requirement is compassion. The final requirement to be in the kingdom of God is compassion. We've got to have feeling for other people. We've got to care about other people. You know, you look at what's happening in the world. You've got people that claim to be Christians, and yet they're being murdered. Now, they don't believe the way we do, but they believe that Jesus existed. They don't understand his teachings and so on. But they're being hung up. They're being crucified. Heads are being chopped off and used as soccer balls. This is what's happening to people that just because they claim to believe in Jesus, this is what's happening. Do we care? Well, they're not converted, so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We've got over 200 people in South Africa that if that country comes apart down there, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. There's going to be a lot of problems. But there were a million people that went to a revival down there asking for a Christian government that don't understand about the Sabbath, they don't understand about the Holy Days, but they're, they're hoping that God will intervene. A million people. This is what's coming down the road. Do we care about these people? A couple of examples I want to mention. Let me give you a couple of scriptures and then we'll look at the examples. Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, it says, God will judge and show compassion. He's going to come back to this earth and he's going to show compassion. We're told in Psalm 78, 38, that God is full of compassion. God is full of compassion. You know, we live in a world today that uh, Paul told Timothy is going to be brutal, that the love for other people is going to fade. It's not going to be there. You can read that in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. We're going to be living in a time when people are not going to care about other people. And when you go grow up playing video games where you're blowing things up and, and killing as many people as you can to get a high score, this doesn't do a lot for this feeling of compassion. It hardens people. It hardens people. You know, before I went to South Africa, I was doing some research, and I watched a, uh, a YouTube video of a young lady that was a reporter. She got in to talk to some of the gang members in Cape Town. These kids were 13, 14, 15, 16, and they were killing people. And she said, how do you sleep at night after you've killed a person? And this one kid responded, now this was partly bravado to impress his friends. He said, like a baby, like a baby. He said, we even skin their faces and do this and that. It was horrible stuff. But this is what has happened to young people growing up in a world where life is not important. Where life is not important. And you've got a generation coming up, probably several generations, 
that had lived in the streets, done these things. This is the world that we're facing in the years just ahead of us. This is what's going to have to change. And God is going to need a group of people that can sit down and be understanding, but say, this is not the way we're going to go. This is the way we're going to go. Yeah, yeah, but we don't have to. Yes, you will. And then you have a little tremor. (laughs) You create a little earthquake. Okay, this guy can do something we can't. We better listen. We're going to have the tools to do things. But we're also going to have to have compassion for people. Zechariah 7, verses 9 to 10. Zechariah is giving instructions there to execute justice, execute justice, show mercy and compassion to other people. You can be compassionate. You can show mercy without being weak. If you know what's right, you know what's wrong and say, this is the direction we need to go. Let's look at some examples in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9, examples in Jesus Christ's life. Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> and you might read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just notice how many times the word compassion is used or examples of compassion. Chapter 9. <clears throat> Start in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes who came in some cases to see his miracles, who came in some cases to uh, hear his teaching, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary or they were harassed and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So he's seeing people led off in this direction, led off in that direction by people that had uh, very different motives. Had a visit with one of our ministers living near St. Louis recently, and he lived right near uh, two big churches out there. I'm not going to mention the names of uh, some of the other organizations. But there are people that are on television getting people to send in money. Uh, they're exploiting people, and they, they tell them how to feel good. But many of those people are sincere. They want to worship God. They want to be pleasing in God's sight, but they're being sold a bill of goods. It's not true. Jesus saw the same thing in his own, in his own day, and he said he had compassion on these people. He cared about these people. He wanted to help these people. You know, he had compassion on people whenever he multiplied the loaves and fishes. <laughs> the disciples said, send them away, send them away. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're busy, don't to work. Jesus had compassion. He said, how many fish do you got? How many loaves do you have? And then he multiplied those. He said, they're hungry. They're hungry. Let's give them some food. So there are a number of examples that way. And I think an interesting case study is James and John. Let's look at a couple of scriptures there. It'd be interesting to meet James and John one of these days because they've got certain characteristics that will make them like very interesting people to meet. In uh, Mark <clears throat> chapter 3 and verse 17, we have a list of the disciples here. <clears throat> 
chapter 3, verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, excuse me, yeah, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave, Jesus gave the names Boanerges, or sons of thunder. Now, why would you call two guys the sons of thunder? Use your imagination just a little bit. You talk about a person, boy, he's a wild person. Or you talk about another person, boy, that, she's really loud. You, know, you, you call people what they are. And Jesus called these two guys the sons of thunder. Now, why did he do that? A couple of reasons. Go to Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Now, we're doing some exegesis here. <laughs> we're looking at a number of scriptures talking about the same two individuals. Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. So now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade them because he does not follow us. Look up some of the other scriptures. We told him to knock it off. We told him to stop. You're not part of us. Don't do that. Now, Jesus, what did he say? Good, 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 guys. Go for it. Is that what he said? No. He said, do not forbid them. Oh, Jesus, wait a minute. Do not forbid them, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. So he says, just you know, cool it. Let them do what they're doing. We'll do what we're doing. But don't get too, get too hyper about these things. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. He was dealing with the sons of thunder here. They wanted to really crack down on this person. Luke chapter 9, verse 54 to 56. <clears throat> We're breaking into kind of the middle of this. Um, verse 54 says, When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire, come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? He saw something he shouldn't be. And he said, uh, Jesus, you want us just to call down light, on, you know, fire on this? I said, burn them up. And Jesus' response is, mentioned here. Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. That's pretty strong. You don't know what manner of spirit you are of with that type of thinking. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. That doesn't mean that you can't intervene from time to time. But what he's saying here is you've got to be merciful. You've got to be compassionate. That doesn't mean being weak. I think some very interesting studies there. If you go to First John chapter 2, let's do that as we begin to close here. <clears throat> Read First John chapter 2 and you begin to realize uh, something happened to John as he got older. Something happened to him. He appeared to mellow. He appeared to mellow. 
First John 2, it says, now this is the son of thunder speaking. He says, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Down in verse 9 and 10. He who says he is in the light, <clears throat> I'm converted. I, I'm, I'm in the church. I'm righteous. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause of stumbling in him. In verse 18, my little children. Now, this is the son of thunder speaking. <laughs> my little children. It's gentle, but it's firm. He's not compromising anything. He's told them basically, you need to live, you keep the commandments of God back in verse 4. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar. That's pretty blunt. But it's couched in words that are loving, that are gentle, that are kind. <clears throat> Down in verse 28 and 29. Third time. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, <clears throat> we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Let's look at one other scripture in First Peter. First Peter chapter three. <clears throat> I think we tend to read some of the earlier verses here, but one of the last verses I think is very interesting in the context of what we're talking about today. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> you notice in verse 1, it's talking about wives. Wives likewise be submissive to your husbands. In other words, work with them. Down in verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them according to understanding. But notice in verse 8, finally, all of you, husbands, wives, and we can include children, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion, having compassion one for another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may, be, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, are you a compassionate person? Why do we need to become compassionate? Because God is compassionate. You and I are here today because of God's mercy, because of his compassion. And God wants us to do the same thing so that we can be part of his family. Brethren, we've been given an understanding of the gospel, the purpose for human life, the reason why we're here. We've been given an understanding of the future, that we can be part of the coming kingdom of God, having eternal life and reigning with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. This is not going to happen just because we're here in church. It's not going to happen just because we keep the Sabbath. It's going to happen if we meet the requirements 
I remember talking with one of the guys that was changing everything in the Worldwide Church of God. He said, well, no requirements. All we have to do is love Jesus. I said, there are requirements. You can believe what you want to believe. But there are requirements if we're going to be there. We've got to develop the qualities of compassion. We've got to develop strong convictions. And we've got to be converted. We've got to be converted. That'll take some time. But we've got to be examining ourselves, just like we learned through the Days of Unleavened Bread. Let's strive, brethren, to develop the fruits that we've been talking about today, the keys to the kingdom of God, the requirements to be there. We've got to be converted. It'll take some time. You might ask yourself, what are the fruits of your conversion? What are the fruits? You don't have to judge anybody else. Look in the mirror. I have to do the same thing. What are the fruits of our conversion? What about the strength of our convictions? What can we do to strengthen those convictions? And then finally, are we compassionate as people? How can we show that compassion to one another so that God can see it and that he can use us and he can open the door to us? so that we, be, we can be in the kingdom of God. Let's strive to do these things so that we can be there together forever.